We got Mike Anderson from the PTR group. Credentials check. Uh, Mr. Anderson designs and deploys satellite systems into space. Go, no, go check. Comms. Go. Robotics. Go. Embedded systems. Go. Engineering, what's the status of the Yeti? Uh, slight adjustment to gain. 0.01.02 Yeti online. We have a go for auto sequence start. Jake has all the controls of the podcast critical functions. Counting down from three, two, one. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Yeah, I'm excited about this, man. I think what you're doing is like the coolest thing on earth. <laughs> well, it's not on earth. That's the problem. <laughs> and that that's what makes it so cool. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I mean, we've been working on this problem for a while, so uh, it's it's good to finally see something actually happening. And what problem is that specifically? Uh, well, in this particular case, we have been working uh, two different programs uh, one of them is RSGS, which is the uh, refueling of uh, geosynchronous satellites. That's on the DARPA side. It was originally called the DARPA Phoenix program. And the other one, which is what we're working with at NASA, so we have teams at both places. Um, the NASA side of it is called Restore-L, which is uh, a low-Earth orbit satellite. In fact, it's uh, Landsat 7, and we're going to grapple with LabSat 7 and then uh, refuel it in orbit. That's never been done before. Um, the robotics and all of the components and everything that go along with it have never been used before. We're inventing all of this stuff as we go. And, of course, we're getting some great support from the NASA roboticists. And uh, we have our own roboticists. So we have uh, most of our guys uh, on, that work for PTR. I mean, we're a small company. We're about 35 folks. But our typical engineer has 18 to 20 years worth of experience. So, you know, we've been doing embedded systems controls, uh, flight software, and, and all that sort of business for quite some time. The, the company itself uh, was actually, this is our 18th year. We were founded in 2000. So um, as a corporation, we've been around for a while. And then, uh, you know, we've just managed to get into some of these programs like RestoreL and RSGS, uh, the DARPA program. And uh, it's just really cutting-edge stuff. So, uh, I, as a matter of fact, I had an opportunity to go by and visit my uh, group over at NASA when I was over there teaching a class last week, and it was fantastic to actually see all of the equipment and see what they're trying to do, some real physics problem kind of things. Um, it's like when you're trying to grab a hold of a two-ton satellite in orbit as it's moving at uh, orbital velocities. Even the slightest mistake ends up in a debris cloud that violates all kinds of treaties. <laughs> so we're all trying to focus on the on the science, and we have to worry about that as well. Well, yes, uh, and that's really, I mean, the science part of it is is difficult, and it's a really complicated problem. Lots of embedded control theory, uh, lots of, I mean, the the folks at NASA, the folks that we've been working with. I mean, we're inventing tools to make this thing work. Um, the, the little gripper, as a matter of fact, the arm that comes off of the satellite has to be able to change tools because we need to be able to cut wires. We need to be able to grab a hold of a filler cap and unscrew it. We need to be able to pull mylar back off of the uh, heat shields. We need to put in new fuel, uh, and then we have to undo all of that. And that all has to be done while the satellite is orbiting. 
The bigger problem here is that the satellite is too far away for humans to control it. So most of this stuff has to be done autonomously. So the robot, uh, the satellite basically runs itself. Once we get it close to the actual uh, Landsat 7, uh, fly, uh, you know, the bird itself, it takes care, it takes over and runs itself. So it's really pretty remarkable stuff, even from an artificial intelligence perspective. Are you running, how are you testing this? Are you running virtual models that run this over and over and over to simulate it? Uh, we do have some simulation, but we actually have mock-ups of all of this equipment. It's uh, in a big bay there at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And uh, we're actually testing it on life-sized uh, devices with life-sized robots. So uh, some of the robots we have are uh, like uh, six degree of freedom, seven degree of freedom two-ton robots, industrial robots that have been modified specifically for this particular application. So we're running through all of the software control stuff here on the ground. Uh, we've already done some testing on uh, the Vomit Comet. Uh, that is the aircraft that goes up and down uh, to test microgravity. Mm -hmm. So we've already done some testing on that with some scale models. So we're actually approaching it from several different perspectives. Uh, both a simulation perspective, a scale model perspective, and a life-sized model perspective uh, with all the weights and everything. We've even been able to instrument the robotic arm so that it behaves like it's in space. So if you walked up to it and touched it with your finger, it would actually start to move. Whoa. Is it a, is it a lot of, is it very difficult dealing with, uh, like, so you have these, you mentioned two physical things that are in the real world that are models, and then you go into a space that doesn't have gravity. How do you compensate for the difference in running, like knowing your physical model is working when you don't have the same? Well, fortunately, NASA has quite a bit of history in terms of understanding how large devices operate in space. Uh, we can certainly take some of the history that we've gotten from the Hubble Space, uh, Space Telescope. Uh, of course, all the work that they've done on the International Space Station. Um, so we have a fairly good history in terms of being able to understand how the physics are supposed to work. And uh, we actually do have an arm that's on the International Space Station that we've used for testing some of this stuff. So we are actually doing some live testing on real robotic arms in uh, zero G uh, on the uh, on the space station itself. So it's been oh. a rather interesting. I mean, you know, you can actually uh, from the facility there at Goddard, we can actually, you know, drive the set, the, the robot arm around on the space station, which is very kind of cool. As long as the space station's overhead, uh, it's really kind of neat. So were you born with like a Capcom voice or did you like take vo vocal lessons for that? <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. I've been uh, teaching classes and speaking at various conferences around the world for the past uh, 25 years or so. So it just happens. Um, you know, it, and of course, there's nothing worse than being a loud engineer. Uh, <laughs> that, that's always kind of a, 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 a an oxymoron. Uh, you know, uh, the different, the definition of a, of an extroverted engineer is one who looks at your shoes instead of his own when he talks to you. <laughs> um, that's, so. that's funny. I talk about, I actually wrote, uh, so I wrote this book and then in the book about being a CTO, I talk about a lot of things that nobody talks about that are just very obvious to me. And one of the things I, I mentioned, like, I think it's been a whole chapter on it. Uh, it's called like when to speak up. I'm talking about um, 
the 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 gen- generalization is um, loud and dumb, smart and quiet. So when you're experiencing life, most of the people who are loud are dumb. It's like the eighty twenty rule, right? <laughs> well, I I wouldn't go so far as to say that I wasn't dumb, but uh, <laughs> you know, nonetheless, nonetheless, I do the best I can. Um, well, the, the issue is, and, and this is something that I teach and I try to teach to engineers uh, when I'm teaching uh, the you know, co-mingling of hardware and software. Um, one of the things that normally happens in the design of a new system is the hardware guys get together. They think of these really cool chips. They've got state-of-the-art stuff, and they're going to build it. And this is really amazing. And then they're going to throw it over the transom to the software engineers, and the software people are just going to make it work, right? It's just magic. Um, unfortunately, when they pick the latest and greatest pieces of silicon, there's no device drivers for those things. The operating systems <laughs> don't know anything about them. So what I try to emphasize to people, to students who are, um, you know, or engineers that are trying to take classes from me is, as a software engineer, first of all, you have to know something about the hardware. Um, you can't just be a total software person in the embedded world because the embedded world is very unforgiving for real, for just software people. Um, mm-hmm. you, then the other side of that is you as a software person have got to attend the hardware meetings and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, excuse me. You realize that if you do it this way, you're going to cost us six months in the schedule because we're going to have to write all new software for this, right? And oftentimes the hardware people don't understand that dynamic. So they think that, well, if it takes them you know, a month to make the hardware, then it should only take a couple of weeks to do the software. And they don't understand that uh, the errata in these new parts is enough that software people will spend months trying to debug this stuff, um, you know, with uh, with basically stone knives and, and bear skins, um, because we don't have the tools to make it work because the stuff is so new that nobody's invented them yet. Wow. Yeah, I I have very limited experience with hardware. I mean, listening to you talk, I feel like. The next time Netflix loads slowly, I'm going to be like, Mike puts stuff into space and moves tiny robot arms and <laughs> two-ton maneuvers, and you guys can't get some some simple streaming service to work right. <laughs> well, wow. um, you know, there. I mean, fortunately, I guess fortunately for everybody, I'm not actually putting those things into space. I've got teams of folks that are trained, they know what they're doing, and they understand what uh, which end is up when it comes to both robotics and satellite systems. Um, I just kind of provide some guidance every now and then where appropriate. Um, you know, when so do you, do you, do you text Elon Musk and be like, bro, got another got another piece of equipment <laughs> you need to get, you, get up there? Uh, you know, I I would love to chat with him because there's some of the things that he does that. Uh, uh, I think that uh, he could certainly do better, um, but uh, you know, not that I know everything, obviously. But uh, we have had uh, one of our other programs uh, is with uh, Orbcom, and uh, we do the flight software for a new generation of satellites called Orbital Generation Two, and uh, OG Two satellites. We've had several of them lost uh, on Falcon rockets. So uh, I think we've had four of them splashed by Falcons uh, over the last couple of years. So, uh, you know, by the time he finally got the Falcon and the Dragons actually landing correctly, 
Um, you know, fortunately, we were we now have been able to get uh, a good number of satellites up in orbit thanks to uh, space, uh, sp- thanks to SpaceX. But uh, for the first few launches, uh, it was dismal. Um, they didn't make insertion orbit. Uh, they made insertion orbit, but we had a choice. We could either deliver food to the space station or put our satellite in orbit, uh, you know, in the proper orbital, uh, you know, plane. So, I mean, there were lots of things that went wrong that uh, you just did you, did you put them on a diet or did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, we saw our satellite go around about two and a half times before it burnt up. Um, oh, wow. This gets expensive. I mean, satellites, uh, Lloyd's well, of London. Well, who covers that cost? Well, see, uh, there used to be Lloyd's of London would cover that. But uh, there have been so many losses on satellites uh, as of late. Um, that it's very difficult for them to actually underwrite a lot of this stuff. So in some cases, the launch vehicle people are actually underwriting it. So they say, hey, if we fail to put it in orbit, we'll pay for it. Well, okay, but that's not really the issue. It's not really the cost of the satellite. I mean, the, the cost is expensive, but the reality is it takes 18 months or 24 months in some cases to make one of these satellites. So what's what's more expensive, the intellectual property to design and deploy and to do the whole thing, or actually the physical manufacturing? Uh, wow, that's a tough one. Um, you know, the intellectual property associated with uh, putting something in orbit and keeping it in orbit. Um, we've we've seen examples, for instance. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a ham radio operator, and we've had amateur satellites in orbit now for you know, better of 20, 20 years. And so uh, there's also a whole new class of small sats that uh, we see universities are able to put in orbit. But uh, we had universities are putting things in orbit like on their own. Uh, yeah. So, well, what happens is they will contract to a launch vehicle and the launch vehicle may say, well, hey, we have this payload that we're supposed to put up, but we have, uh, you know, 200 pounds worth of extra space. Uh, of extra lift capability. So uh, anybody mm. who wants to put something up and if it fits in these dimensions, yeah, we'll launch it and we'll tell you how much it's going to cost. If I decide that I want to be, have you seen that movie, The Astronaut Farmer? <laughs> yes, right, right. Okay. <laughs> okay. If I want to Billy Bob this thing and start going out in my backyard, like how how do you not, like how do you do that? Well, uh, it turns out that uh, the process for doing small sats, amateur small sats, uh, is actually fairly well known at this point. Um, there have been, uh, they actually sell kits, CubeSat kits. Um, there is a specific uh, form factor. It's uh, like a 12 by 12 inch cube. And um, these CubeSats, you can basically put anything you want to in them. Um, there are some limitations, of course. When you're dealing in space, you're in a very hazardous environment. Uh, there's lots of radiation. There are micrometeorites that hit you. Uh, and when a micrometeorite hits you at uh, 7 or 8 kilometers a second, it really ruins your day. Um, yeah. So there are some significant problems, uh, not to mention outgassing uh, because your part um, when it's made, it's made here on Earth, and then you put it in a vacuum, and it's not made to run in a vacuum. So the little bit of gas that may be inside the chip itself will then outgas through the component, and the component blows up. So, wow. I mean, there, there's all kinds of little things like that that come into play. Um, you can fix a lot of that by using conformal coating. So you can take an epoxy and basically coat your satellite electronics in this epoxy 
and uh, it will keep most of that from happening. But still, um, you know, you're, you're trying to get lift. And right now, the big problem that the world faces in general is lift. Um, if you take a look, uh, for instance, well, of course, we don't have the space shuttle anymore. Uh, the uh, Deltas, uh, the Delta IV rockets, those are relatively old technology. Um, Atlas rockets are still being used. Those are really old technology. Um, they're very, you know, they're reasonably stable, but those things still blow up. Uh, we have, uh, in a, one of our cases for one of the OG-2 satellites, we were on a Russian booster, and the Russian booster had ourselves and 12 other satellites on it, and it blew up on the pad. So wow. uh, it was not just our satellite. A whole bunch of people's satellites got lost. But, you know, when, when people think about space today, we still tend to think in terms of, well, you know, we did all that stuff in the Apollo era and Gemini and Apollo, and that was back in the 60s. Surely we know how to build a rocket today that won't blow up. But the reality is when you're running fuel through turbo pumps and all of the mechanisms that are required to launch one of these things and the temperatures are thousands of degrees Celsius at the uh, nozzle when the, when the fuel is being burnt, Things go wrong. Stuff happens. And when it happens, it usually happens in a very spectacular way, and the, the whole thing blows up. So um, the moral of the story is don't be too close to any launch uh, <laughs> because you never know what it's going to do. <laughs> no, I got my, um, my wedding ring uh, made out of tungsten because they had like some really high melting point and they said that it was used in like nozzles for rockets right. or something like very, that. Very heavy metal. Um, yeah. you know, so you're, you're probably, you notice your wedding ring. If it's made out of tungsten, it's really heavy. Yeah. I figured it symbolized the marriage, right? They say ball and chain. So why not get this? <laughs> I, I'm not going to go down that path. Uh, that, that's between you and your respective oh, other. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go that uh, <laughs> no, she's not, we just had a baby. Oh, well, so I'm really congratulations. Now you definitely have the, the chain part of it. Uh, yeah, no, it's awesome though. Do you have any kids? Yes, I do. Actually, my daughter is uh, finishing up this semester at Carnegie Mellon. Mm, uh, nice. and, uh, she has, uh, definitely, she's very happy to be finishing. Uh, my wallet is incredibly happy for her to be finishing. <laughs> Um, Carnegie is a wonderful school. Pittsburgh's a great town, but man, the cost is through the roof. What did she go for? Uh, she went, uh, it, remarkably enough, she is in a double major, uh, art and Japanese. Uh-oh. Your microphone is, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> oh, wait, are you back? Hello, testing one, two. Mike is back. Yay! Yay. Oh, my goodness. You had us there for a second, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, uh, somebody, uh, Carnegie must be monitoring. They pulled the plug on me. <laughs> you can't possibly tell them how expensive we are. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, so she's going Japanese art. That's interesting. Right. Well, it's Japanese and art. So two different majors. It's a blended major. Um, and it turns out she has a real interest in astrophysics as well. Ooh. So, um, you know, I, and I, when I said, okay, you can actually get any degree you want, but here's my stipulation. You have to be employable. 
you cannot be living in my basement when you're 35. You have to be able to be self-sustaining. And uh, I did find a job at the uh, Large Hadron Collider oh, that yeah. is a, requires artists who understand physics. So I said, okay, there's at least one job for this mix. Yep. Okay, <laughs> at least you might be able to get a job here. So this is good. This is good. Uh, Should get some great travel in too. Uh, well, yeah, she actually, she was in um, the UK last semester for a semester abroad at the Chelsea School of Art. So uh, that has also been a lot of fun for her. So I am cautiously optimistic that uh, this will mean good things for her future. Uh, if not, uh, I'm not going to quit my day job. <laughs> Have you ever uh, got run into uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, I, I have communicated back and forth with them on occasion. Uh, I've also in touch with several uh, other, you know, kind of physicist types that, uh, you know, they will see me at a conference or they'll see me on YouTube. I do. A, I've got a lot of videos uh, from uh, uh, Embedded Linux Conference and some of the Linux Foundation organizations, uh, some of those conferences out on YouTube. So I'll hear from people occasionally, but I would dearly love to meet both of them personally. Uh, that would, of course, be, uh, you know, one of those. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, especially. Uh, but especially Neil deGrasse Tyson, that would be just absolutely awesome. Uh, I've met Michio Kaku, um, definitely a, an interesting fellow. Uh, and I bet that the other ones are just as fascinating as uh, he was. Well, I'll pull some strings. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I appreciate that. Jake, power up the Twitter. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, I'm actually talking with the, I think Wednesday, I'm talking with the Linux Academy. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So there's some there's some cool people over there. Yeah, we have, uh, we're actually working, there's a group of us that have been in the embedded Linux community for, you know, a couple of decades. And uh, we're starting to realize that uh, when we go to these conferences, we all know each other, we know what we're doing. It's, it's basically, you know, buddies and old friends, and it's kind of like big user group meetings. But there are a number of people who come to these conferences who this is their first intro to embedded Linux. They've never seen the real-time side of Linux. They don't really have anything, uh, they, they don't have any history. So we're now setting up an apprentice Linux engineer program Ooh. that will uh, allow people to basically, we'll, we'll bring, they will actually get a target board. Uh, and we have a whole series of a couple of days of, um, you know, folks that are well-versed in the technology that'll be presenting information. I'll be going into things like uh, GDB, uh, using the GNU debugger in user space and in kernel space, how you debug device drivers and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. So these are all kind of mysterious things that if you've never had to do it before, it seems insurmountable. But uh, once you have somebody sit down with you and say, here, here's how this works, then it's like, oh, of course it works that way. So we're hoping that we can help foster uh, some younger engineers, get them into the embedded Linux uh, realm and get some contributions going. Um, you know, it's, you know, even though it turns out that, you know, 90% of all the code that's uh, generated for Linux is actually being generated by um, actual corporations. So Intel, HP, um, you know, Qualcomm, all those folks are actually contributing. Um, there is still a place in the Linux community for individual contributors. 
And we absolutely need people to even just look over code to make sure it's formatted correctly, that their warnings are gone. I mean, there's a lot of work that has to be done. And uh, I think the Linux kernel right now is up to about 18 million lines of source code. So um, there's a lot of stuff here. And we're always finding little nits and things in the system that was like, oh, I thought we fixed that. Uh, so getting enterprising young engineers up to speed in how Linux works. Uh, understand that Linux as an operating system is uh, running on everything from the very smallest uh, internet toaster all the way up to the fortune you know, to the top 500 supercomputers. Linux runs across all of those platforms. There's no other operating system in the world that can do that or can claim that. And uh, it, it just, uh, for something that was started as kind of a, uh, a, a lark back in 1991 when Linus Torvalds posted the first version of it, uh, it has just absolutely grown. We support 26 different uh, um, uh, CPU architectures. And it turns out that in Restore L, we are actually using Linux, uh, the real-time Linux, to control a lot of the robotic arms. That's so interesting. So it first came out in 1991? That's correct. So Linux has been around for over 25 years. That's when Ruby came out. And it's so amazing to see how far, like, the difference. They both came out in 91, and look what happened to Linux. And look what Obviously, they're not the same thing. They're totally different. But it's just amazing to see the spread of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, when you consider that uh, most television sets these days run a Linux derivative, mm -hmm. uh, Android, of course, is Linux. It's the largest Linux distribution on the planet. Um, you know, there, there are just so many things that you look at it and it's a truly embedded system. It's an appliance. You don't think of it as a computer, but you know there's got to be a computer in there someplace. And that's the magic. So I have limited hardware experience in, in in operate, I have limited low-level operating experience. Most of my stuff is in application software, um, things like Ruby. Uh, do you test when you're writing? Is is the Linux code base like? Do you monitor test coverage? Do you write tests for this? Oh, absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. No, there there is. Uh, we have uh, access to static code analysis systems, mm -hmm. uh, so we do static code analysis against the Linux kernel. Uh, we also do a lot of active testing. So when we put together a release candidate, the RC candidate then goes out to several thousand developers, and those that have the time and the hardware will run their tests to make sure that it does what it's supposed to do. If we find a bug, we'll report that. Uh, and that goes into the individual subsystems. So whether it's the USB subsystem or the PCI Express subsystem, um, the individual teams are organized in such a way that they will handle their own subsystem, and then they'll push that code up to the next level. And ultimately, it gets all the way up to Linus, uh, Linus Torvalds, and Linus is the final say. He will really? either bless right. it or not bless it. But uh, Linus works at the Linux Foundation, and he has access to the, uh, the servers that the Linux Foundation has. Uh, so he's got access to lots of different kinds of hardware. And, uh, you know, it, it gives him gives him something to do and uh, definitely keeps him up at nights, I think, <laughs> at least in some cases. Does he have early access to Elon Musk flamethrower? <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know. Uh, I, I maybe uh, I'm sure that I'll run into Linus at the Embedded Linux conference in March uh, out in Portland, Oregon. He lives in Portland. So uh, may, maybe we can get a chance to ask him. I wonder if that runs on Embedded Linux. <laughs> 
um, who knows? Uh, we can certainly we can certainly hope, uh, <laughs> or maybe be afraid. Be afraid. I'm not sure which one we should do, but uh, well, a little bit of both. A li- perhaps a little bit of both. Yeah, it's uh, we're starting to see Linux in a lot of automotive applications now. Uh, we already see it in some aircraft applications. So even though it's not uh, AirRank 653 compatible or uh, uh, IEC 61508 or any of those nasty certifications from the government, um, it's still, uh, there are key pieces like the entertainment system where we'll see Linux being used in the entertainment system on aircraft. Um, Look at that. Tesla vehicles use a modified version of Ubuntu. Yes, yes, they do. Um, wow. We're seeing the, uh, it's called the Geneva Foundation, and the Geneva Foundation is all about Linux and automotive. So we're seeing hmm. Linux, we're seeing Android, uh, we're seeing various derivatives, Tizen and other derivatives that are showing up in automotive. So as we start getting to more and more artificial intelligence, uh, we get to automatic driver assist systems, the ADAS systems, we start getting to level three and level four ADAS systems. Um, you know, this is where you have to have a lot more understanding of what's going on. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a level two, um, you know, you, you've got the lane keeping and the radars and all that sort of business. Uh, and actually, I heard a very good uh, kind of quote on it. Uh, it was uh, at layer at level three. It's uh, eyes off. Level four is hands off. Level five is brain off. So, you know, the car takes more and more active control of the system as you get to higher and higher levels. Uh, level 5 ADAS is completely uh, driverless. Basically, it's, uh, you, you, don't need to have a, you don't need to have a human in it. So you can, I guess, use it to make pizza deliveries without humans, I guess. So there that, you go. That, that could be a, a threat to the pizza delivery industry. Who knows? Well, you could deliver pizza to humans or humans to pizza. Uh, that is the other possibility. And... You know, one of the things that we find when you start talking about automotive systems is, um, you know, what happens if you get to the point where Uber, let's say, has a self-driving fleet that, uh, you know, why do you have a minivan? Well, you have a minivan in your family because your kid has to go to soccer once a week or he has to go to the game and you got to pile everything in and it just takes a lot of space. What if you could simply order a minivan to show up at your house at the right time and take everybody out to the game and then come back, drop you off, and then it goes back into the fleet? That changes the dynamic of how automotive works worldwide. You're going to talk about impacts on taxes, road use taxes, um, personal property taxes, um, the amount of vehicles on the road themselves, parking locations. I mean, you're going to change everything with this kind of technology. That's what I'm so pumped about. The market's moving so fast. I'm really interested to watch how the government transitions will happen because right now it's a nice to have, but things are going to be moving so fast. That you're going to have to adjust the systems for uh, to be able to move faster. Like right now, it's, it takes so much time to respond to things like that. And we're going to have to change our government systems to be able to respond to these things faster. Well, if we could get some artificial intelligence in the government, that would probably be a good thing. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go down that path either. That well, sounds- you know what? We'll just we'll we'll leave that part of the conversation and I'll settle for any intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> that that would also be a good thing. But again, I, I probably shouldn't go down that path. So uh, <laughs> as much as I might agree with you. Yeah. Um, 
I think logic in general, we should encourage logic in society in general, not just, not just government. I mean, just in general, we should, we should uh, encourage logic and critical thinking a little bit more. Uh, that would be great. I mean, I am a, a robotics mentor for a high school robotics team, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really interesting to uh, kind of help the kids see how the real world works. Um, you know, I did have one student that I caught uh, was actually Googling, what should I do with my life? And nice. I, I said to him, you really don't expect an answer, do you? And he goes, well, Google can answer everything else. Why not this? Uh-oh. And I'm like, okay, let me explain to you how a search engine works. And once I had finished explaining it to him, he then realized that it was a, a very stupid thing to do <laughs> to ask Google what he should be doing with his life. Um, but, uh, you know, those are, that, that's a level of misunderstanding that exists today uh, in reasonably intelligent people. They just don't understand how this technology works. And as a CTO, it, part of my job is to help um, the, the customers and help uh, people that I've at, at speaking engagements and things of that sort to help them understand that the technology is not magic. It is well understood by a few people, and we need to make it more understood by others. I agree. And, and this is no, no less the case than when you start talking about the Internet of Things. Well, I want to talk about that right now. So I've been talking and looking at a couple different companies have, have the conversation up. Right now, a really hot topic, you see all the enterprises jumping on it, is this IoT enterprise management system to manage all your devices, control systems, things like that. They're all saying, we're Amazon's better than this, so-and-so is better than that. What do you think of, of this battle going on right now for IoT enterprise market share from a management standpoint? Well, um, you know, the issue is that a lot of it is hype. Um, I mean, Mm. unfortunately, there is a lot of smoke and mirrors going on here. Uh, I mean, understand that the Internet of Things has actually been around for 30 years. Um, It's gotten the new name and it's gotten the hot uh, moniker associated with it. But the reality is the embedded systems that we're working with today in the IoT are roughly equivalent to the same things we had back in the 1980s. I had a uh, a 32-bit 33 megahertz, 68030 running uh, with, um, I think it had 16 megabytes worth of RAM. And that was a fast machine back in the mid-1980s. Today, we're dealing with a Cortex M0, uh, M0 Plus, uh, M3. It's got 256K bytes worth of RAM. It's got a 48 megahertz part, 32-bit processor. So they're really not that much different than what we saw back in the 1980s. However, today, the mindset is very different. The mindset today by the developers is, uh, well, everything they've been taught in school that everything's a virtual machine. Uh, Memory is infinite. CPU is infinite. Storage is infinite. And on the x86 platforms, that's essentially true. But when you get onto some of these resource-constrained platforms like the ARM Cortex series, the Cortex-M series parts, you're dealing with 128K, 256K bytes worth of K bytes worth of RAM, not megabytes, not gigabytes, but K bytes worth of RAM. So uh, the knowledge of how to work in constrained resource systems, uh, unfortunately, most of the universities are dropping the ball on that. So it means that old fogies like me have to try and explain to people, no, 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 you can't write code like that. 
because that won't fit. You can't just simply say, well, we'll run everything in Java because Java needs two megabytes of memory just to run the VM. And I only have 128K. So it doesn't fit. Right. So it says you have to design the code differently. Now, uh, when you look at kind of a total package, so whether it's Amazon's IoT or ThingWorks or, uh, you know, ThingSquare or Verizon's version, whichever one you want to talk about, um, you have to think in terms of how does it scale down to the small sensor? Uh, if we're dealing with the Internet of Things, we're dealing with two different big markets. One is the consumer market. The other is the industrial market. The industrial market is typically estimated to be three to four times the size of the consumer market. Understand that when you put something in in an industrial environment, it stays there until it dies. This is not something that you can, oh, you know, I, the new Fitbit 3 is out. Let me throw away my old Fitbit and buy a new one. No, no, no. That doesn't happen in the industrial space. In the industrial space, we're still running devices that are based on RS-232, RS-422, uh, 20-milliamp current loop. All these old technologies that have been around for the past 40 years, we're still running things on that stuff. Um, there is a, uh, a, water, uh, a water company, basically, uh, I can't say what city they're involved with, but um, there are about 2 million people in the greater uh, uh, metro area for this city, they are running the entire water system on Windows 95. <laughs> so, uh, and they don't dare change it because the people who designed it have retired and nobody knows how it works. I love it. So when you talk about uh, some of these new systems like ThingWorks and, and Amazon IoT, uh, you have to understand what application is it going to be used in? What is it trying to address? Um, mm. We need to think in terms of the communications, the radios. Are we uh, over Are we the 2.4 gigahertz band? Are we sub gigahertz, 900 megahertz? Are we 432 megahertz? That all changes the radio propagation. Um, are we using a mesh topology? Are we using a cellular type topology? Um, that has to be taken into account. Um, how much power do the radios use? Um, you know, we need to understand if our goal is to run 10 years on a coin cell, how do you do that? Can you do that? And uh, we get, unfortunately, a lot of hype from the individual uh, manufacturers in IoT, um, you know, frameworks that say, oh, we're, we're fantastic. We speak MQTT. Well, congratulations, you and everybody else. What makes your system different? How can I achieve the goals that I have to achieve given that your code base stops at the Linux border gateway and does not get down into the distributed sensor nodes? You know, if you've got a piece of code that requires four megabytes to run, then I'm sorry, it won't run on the platforms that we have to run it in. We have to do something different. Are there companies bridging that gap? Uh, there are. Uh, there are some that are working towards it. Uh, certainly, uh, Intel and the Linux uh, Foundation has been working on an operating system called Zephyr. Um, Zephyr is targeting these very small platforms. Uh, there is IoTivity, uh, which uh, goes all the way down to the Arduino platform, I think. Um, of course, the All Scene Alliance has been doing some stuff, and the Thread Group uh, also has been doing work. 
So uh, there are a lot of folks that are looking at this problem, but understand that many of these announcements that were made by Thread Group, for instance, they were made two years ago, three years ago in some cases, and they're just now getting the product out there so that we can actually get our hands on it and see how it works. Um, the Thread Group, you, in order to get access to the Thread Group's SDKs, you had to be a member of the Thread Group. Um, the smallest value you could be a member of the Thread Group was $2,000 a year. So the do-it-yourself uh, home inventor, uh, I'm sorry, that's out of his range. Right. So uh, out of his or her range. So it really is a case where you can have these big IoT frameworks, uh, but understand they are targeting big dollar investments. And uh, they oftentimes don't go far enough into the ecosystem to be able to handle the actual sensor as it exists out on the edge. So there is. Are they the, able to monitor it, or they just can't change it, or? Well, they if you could come up with some other piece of software and radio connectivity and everything else to get the signal to the border gateway, then they can certainly do that. Now, um, the problem is that their framework usually stops at the border gateway. So if you are an industrial facility and you're trying to then automate with, you know, replace your old stuff with new stuff, um, then basically you're on your own. Uh, you might be able to get, uh, you know, from the border gateway, which is usually a Linux machine, um, all the way up to the cloud. And the data, most of these um, frameworks, if you look at uh, ThingWorks and some of these others, they're focused on the data analysis piece. That's where the real money lives for them. So you're talking about storage of lots of data in the cloud, and the data scientists to do the analysis of that data. So you're looking to try and find that nugget that's buried in the data someplace. Um, but that, again, it usually stops at the border gateway. So uh, the actual end device, the actual edge device, you're kind of left on your own. So hopefully that will change. Uh, I know that there are some people that, uh, some organizations that are working to try and change it. But, uh, you know, how long is it going to take? That's an excellent question. So uh, I want to talk more about the robotics program your company is sponsoring. Yes. When I read it, I was like, all right, that's really, really cool. And then I kind of thought, are you guys taking like an incubator approach? Like you're sponsoring the program so you could pay attention to the, the smart talent that's coming out of it? Well, uh, what we do is we sponsor first robotics teams. And mm -hmm. the, the teams that we sponsor, they're all high school teams. Uh, I have had the, the, the real uh, luxury of working with some incredibly bright young people uh, that have now gone off to uh, Virginia Tech and Georgia Tech and other places, and they're continuing to work on robotics in those areas. So, you know, I look at it from the perspective of, you know, at some point in the future, I might be on a, on a respirator that these people actually wrote the code for. So <laughs> I I have a, a, a nested, you know, I, I've got an incentive there to make sure they understand how to do it right. And sometimes it means that I have to undo the damage that has been done to them by their computer science departments. Um, you know, oftentimes they will not be trained in how to do things in real-time mechanisms. They won't understand timing. They won't understand caches. They don't understand the hardware. Um, and you have to fix that. So when you're dealing with deeply embedded systems in control systems, automotive, aircraft, satellites, you have to know how the hardware works. That is not something that you can escape. 
So uh, it's important for software developers to understand how the hardware actually functions. I've got examples that show, uh, you know, if you just make this small little tweak in the memory alignment, everything runs 600% faster. I mean, those are demonstrable examples that people, software developers, are totally blown away by. And that's because they don't understand how the underlying hardware works. If, so we have a lot of, we have a lot of software uh, developers that listen to this. And if you were to give them a place where they could go just poke around on a Saturday afternoon with a beer and kind of see a little, a few cool things about where the hardware meets the software just to kind of pique their interest a little bit, what sort of resource would you direct them to? Uh, I would, uh, you know, one of the things that's really exciting is what's happening in the maker space these days. Mm. Uh, we're seeing a lot of work on Raspberry Pis, uh, BeagleBone Blacks, BeagleBone Blues. Um, it is really exciting to see your code make something move. Oh, yeah. There are tons of small robot uh, devices that you can pick up, um, you know, four-wheel drive or, or tank drive type robots. Uh, that you can actually get the the basic chassis for about forty nine to fifty dollars, um, and it could range all the way up to a hundred dollars depending on how much money you want to sink into it. But then you can take an Arduino, or you can take a Raspberry Pi, or a BeagleBone Blue, and go through the process of you know watch YouTube videos, see what other people have done. There is nothing that's going to bring you up to speed in the hardware faster than actually working with it. I fully agree with that. Now, let's say that that 13-year-old that you were helping with the whole Google problem, let's say, uh, we'll, we'll call her a she, let's say that she turns around and asks you, if if where should she be putting her time? If right now, a thir- I started writing code before 13 because my father did it and he taught me. So I had the luxury of being able to sit there and write code all day with a mentor, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So where where would that individual put their time so that what, when they hit 18 or 19 and they're going to enter the workforce that they have five years of experience in something that's like hot today. Uh, Absolutely. I I think that probably the best outlet that we have available for young people today is probably first robotics. Um, There's another program called cyber Patriot. If you happen to have an interest in uh, cyber defense, cyber offense or cyber defense, the uh, Cyber Patriot program, I think that one's sponsored by DARPA. I don't remember right offhand, but uh, Cyber Patriot is definitely one you can look up. There's First Robotics, there's Best Robotics, there's Vex Robotics. Um, there are a lot of these programs that are available in uh, the uh, elementary schools, the middle schools, the high schools, um, that if you simply take the time to investigate them, you will have an opportunity to learn as much software in, uh, you know, the amount of time that we have access to. I mean, we're professional engineers. We're working with these kids. We're mentoring these kids. And uh, frankly, I've, I've had some fantastic young ladies in uh, the robotics program. Right now, my, my team captain for the uh, software development squad is a, uh, she's a senior this year. I'll actually be sorry to see her graduate. I've offered her a possibility of keeping her back a year just so that I can keep her <laughs> for another year. Um, but, uh, you know, this is really, you've got to take um, kind of the bull by the horns here. You have got to, as a young person, uh, find access to the, um, you know, to the programs that are available to you. 
Uh, sometimes they're sponsored by churches. Sometimes they're sponsored by NASA. Um, you know, you just have to look for them. And uh, oftentimes, if you can find yourself in one of those circumstances, you will have a, cr- a tremendous uh, leg up by the time you get to college. I've had uh, some of my students uh, that are uh, 14, 15 years old working for SAIC writing code for a defense contractor uh, nice. because they understand how the code needs to be written. So like if a software developer, if I had a 13-year-old ask me today, he, was very, he or she was very interested in sort of the next generation of, of just writing code based on my experience, right? Because that's what I have to go off of. I would say start paying attention right now and start at home writing code with the voice systems and understanding the Alexas and the Google Homes because they're going to get a lot bigger in the next three or four years. And then the jobs are going to be really hot when you're graduating high school. Correct. Uh, Voice enablement. I've done a couple of programs on voice enablement. I actually have a companion robot that I'm working on right now for the elderly uh, that uh, is Alexa enabled. So you can say uh, you you can actually talk to it. And, you know, part of the thing that you need to watch for when you're trying to build companion robots is you don't want them to look like humans. Right. uh, Because you don't want them to personify them simply because they're going to break down. And when they break down, you don't want somebody to get depressed over the idea that this this friend of theirs doesn't work anymore. Um, But that also means that you need to have sensors on it to be able to determine, you know, maybe you work in multiple modalities. Uh, You're looking in both the infrared and the visible spectrum to see if they're still breathing. Um, You know, part of the problem was I have friends of mine who parents, they don't want to go into uh, kind of the nursing situation. They want to stay at home and they want to be responsible for themselves. And you absolutely want to try and support that. But uh, oftentimes they need to be reminded to take their medicine. Um, They need to be reminded to, you know, have dinner uh, or eat lunch. Um, You know, those are the kinds of things that small companion robots that are voice enabled can easily do. And you can have it then uh, if it doesn't see any movement in the house when there's supposed to be somebody there, it can then kind of send a text message back to say, hey, I haven't seen anything. Um, And then you can come in with your smartphone. You can attach to the camera that's on the device. You can drive the device around looking for people, uh, seeing if there's a big lump in the middle of the floor that's not supposed to be there, that kind of stuff. And uh, Alexa and Google Home and those voice enablement systems, um, they are coming along. There are lots of examples. Uh, Again, Raspberry Pis and BeagleBones and those types of things. They're all Linux-based for the most part. Uh, so, um, you know, get a device, a uh, raspberry Pi is $35. I mean, there is yeah. no excuse for not having something like that. And, uh, you know, you can get a pocket beagle, uh, one of the pocket beagle bones for 20 bucks. It's $19. Um, there's absolutely no excuse for not having an opportunity to sit down, get up to speed in this technology extend it to an Alexa. There are lots of examples out on YouTube, uh, on Google's site that show you how to build a Raspberry Pi that is enabled with Alexa. Those are the kinds of things that uh, somebody can do for a reasonably small investment. And if I'm a parent and I have a choice between buying the kid a, a $60 copy of Grand Theft Auto or 60 bucks worth of computers and robotics equipment, uh, I, there's no question in my mind what I'm going to do. 
Well, it's going to be a lot harder to explain what hookers are to them, though. Uh, well, that's uh, you know different different kind of hookers, I guess. Um, but you know, there are hooks. They're operating system hooks. So there's a there completely different kind of hook. But um, you know, callbacks. <laughs> that's right. Callbacks. Uh, yeah, callbacks have a different meaning, I guess, in that game. Yep. Uh, but uh, when I when I talk to parents uh, who you know we come in and we're kind of doing the the parent uh, you know introduction to what. Uh, kind of STEM programs are available. Um, we talk to parents and we say, look, you know, um, they say, well, we, we hear the robotics team is a lot of work. It's a lot of time. And we say, absolutely, that is correct. But understand that you would spend the same amount of time in basketball practice, lacrosse practice, football practice, the football games. Oh, no. We're losing Mike again. <laughs> Let's see if we can resolve it faster. Dude, so I was thinking about when he was talking about um, there was these people that did this wristband that you would put on the older people. They were, do, they were trying to do a startup. I don't know if it ever got off the ground, but it basically monitor their movement and like if they're moving around and stuff. Then I was watching these image recognition, video image recognition, like Uru and stuff, all those guys we had on. And they were able to, in like the Amazon, how it can tell when you're picking up objects and stuff. You could put one of these smart robots in there with a camera and it could actually tell if they're taking like their prescription it could tell if they're eating food. And so like, if you forget, you could be like, did I eat lunch today? And the robot would be like, yes, right? Because it would be watching you eat lunch uh, or know you made lunch or it could tell you, remind you to eat the lunch if it noticed you hadn't. Yeah. I think, man, oh, it would be unbelievable, man. Yeah. For people that have these memory problems and stuff like that. No, it's, I don't know the possibilities are. That would take like a. Can, can you, can you hear Oh me? yeah. Hey, we got you back. Okay, good. Did you hear us talking about the the nursing home thing? Yes, I did. Are we doing? Are, are you doing that, or are we doing that? What's happening? Uh, well, I don't know of anybody who's doing that right offhand, but uh, I know I have talked to several people about the little companion bot idea idea, and uh, it has a lidar on it, so it actually has a rotational, a spinning lidar to map the house. So uh, the, the goal is to make it cheap enough that you can have one for every floor so it becomes more like a Roomba um, than it is like a, a little robot that runs around. It's not like a BB-8 or anything like that. It's, right. it's, you know, it's more like an appliance. And if you can make it cheap enough to be able to do that, then there's a lot of people who would pay to have somebody be able to check in on their parents um, and be able to keep their parents at home in a place they're comfortable uh, and then be able to just check in on them periodically. Of course, there's all kinds of cybersecurity issues. There's, uh, you know, uh, firewall issues and all that sort of business. We're going to have to deal with all of that. But at this point, I'm just working on trying to get the system working. Once I get it functioning and you can then talk to it, they can say, hey, Alexa, order me some pizza or, uh, you know, change. That's actually the, the most requested skill this month. <laughs> Did you know that? No, I did not. I got the email uh, from uh, Amazon two days ago. It said the most requested skills. There was like three of them of last month, and one of them was to order Domino's. Well, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, <laughs> at least it's something useful, right? Um, right. You know the and but that's the kind of thing you you want to be able. First of all, you change the wake word so it's not Alexa, it's robot right. or computer or whatever. Uh, you know, make it more like Star Trek. What can you say? Uh, but. Uh, you know, you want to be able to set up a SLAM system, a simultaneous location and measurement uh, system, so it can measure the house. It can then determine that there's something that's in the middle of the floor that's not supposed to be there. 
um, mm-hmm. and then make alerts. I mean, there, there are, uh, and you were not talking about something that requires incredible CPU time or uh, the use of GPGPU. Uh, you can't buy GPGPU anymore. Uh, it turns out all the Bitcoin miners have bought all that stuff up. Have you seen? Have you seen what they're doing with? Um the the video tagging that's gone open source and it's just unbelievable what Amazon's using to detect when people are picking up objects and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah. No, there, there's a lot of stuff that's happening there, but uh, unfortunately, a lot of that is going to be dependent on some fairly significant image processing. Um, and image processing, when I was speaking at the Embedded uh, Systems Conference back in December. Um, there were a lot of presentations on image processing, and you you then come to realize quite quickly the state of image processing today, and it is uh, making progress, but nowhere near as good as it needs to be. Um, as a matter of fact, I've got some NVIDIA Jetson boards that I purchased for the robotics team, uh, and uh, those are going to be used for vision processing, target tracking, and things of that sort. But uh, trying to explain to high school students exactly how you do vision processing, um, it's, a, it's a tricky problem. Uh, uh, you know, you have to basically distill it down to something that's easily attainable. Um, we are very fortunate on my home team in that we have three Microsoft HoloLenses. Oh, so, uh, I hate you. I'm flying out to hang out with you. <laughs> uh, and we were, the, we were the only team last year um, to actually use a HoloLens on the field. So um, we are, you know, we're, we're sponsored by NASA, and the NASA house teams have all got HoloLenses that they've been a, a kind of given uh, to them by NASA through Microsoft, through donations from Microsoft. And so, um, you know, smart move on their end. Well, uh, absolutely. And, and then it's not so much the virtual reality that is interesting to me, it's the augmented reality. Oh, yeah. Speaking my language. Because virtual reality by itself is, yeah, it's kind of cool. It's great to play a game. But if I need to know how to start a generator, and I've never started a generator before, I want to be able to put on a pair of glasses that say, here, push this button, turn this gauge, pull this oh, crank. I am so pumped for the future, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my voice last week, so I've been trying to talk quietly. But I want to like, man, oh, dude, I want to unleash. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's one of those cases that, uh, uh, like I say, my, my first programming job was back in 1977. So uh, I'm, I'm looking at where the future is going on this. And I'm like, you know, the kids today, those young whippersnappers, they can stay off my lawn. But by God, they have an opportunity to do some really incredible stuff. We're going to we're going to I'm not going to let that thing go only because I have a friend who's building um, a 600 unit retirement home about two hours south of us. Um, and you know, they're all like the same floor plans and stuff. I, I got to talk to them and be like, dude, you gotta, you should, we should all talk about that. Uh, absolutely. I think that there is a place for, uh, automation where people then start to feel, well, people are more and more comfortable with it. Even the generation above myself. I mean, my dad certainly understands computers these days. He understands what a smartphone is. And you just simply make it so that they are smart appliances. And taken from that perspective, they're not scary. You don't have to worry about them administering you drugs or anything crazy like that. It's not like the, the scary movies that uh, right. you know, computers run amok. 
Um, so uh, in all those cases, I mean, you can make the technology attainable. You can make it less uh, intimidating and uh, get people to accept it. I mean, that's that's really the thing. Uh, you know, who would have thought 20 years ago that we were going to have uh, octo-core computers in our pocket and rely on them every day? I mean, I'm going to start calling them that now. Yeah, your iPhone, now I got my octo-core computer. Absolutely. <laughs> People will look at you and wonder what the hell an octocore is, but, uh, oh, no. you know, <laughs> I'll throw an English dictionary at them. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> I'll have to go get one from the antique store. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the other thing. I mean, you know, we, we, we used to have these things called books. <laughs> oh yeah. And, uh, I, I mean, I'm just as guilty. I certainly, I carry my, uh, my Samsung tablet around with me and it probably has, uh, 150 different reference books on it. Uh, yeah. just simply because there's no way I could carry that kind of stuff. I only need it once in a while, but when I need it, I need it. And I don't want to have to go back home to try and get it. It was always my job. My dad had this like roller thing that would collapse and it was like a metal frame and he would put his crates and his books and everything on it. And it was always my job to like put the bungee cords on it and wheel it into the <laughs> office. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, too. Oh, I, absolutely. Oh, yeah. well, you know, uh, the, the, I used to work on old TV sets back in the day and, uh, you know, my, uh, we actually had a flat panel TV that went out and my wife says, well, let's take it to a TV shop and have it repaired. And I go, well, first of all, those things don't exist anymore. <laughs> um, but, uh, it turned out it was, um, a bad capacitor inside of the TV set. And by going on YouTube and just scouting around, it was called the click of death. Oh, uh, no. and it was a, it was a characteristic of certain Samsung TVs. So for $3, I was able to buy the parts to replace the uh, electrolytic capacitors in it and bring it back online. And we got another couple of years out of it before it finally died. But when it did die, it was like, okay, it's dead. Let's just throw this thing out, you know, put oh, yeah. it, take it to the recycler and let's get something else. I was tired of working on it. Oh, dude, Mike, this is like, I, you're, we're best friends now. Like, I don't care if you want to be or not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I want to wrap up the call with the last question. Uh, Elon Musk texts you back. He said, no problem, bro. We'll get those uh, satellites into space on our sixth attempt. <laughs> and then he asks you, um, come over, hang out with him. He's got a time machine and you're going to get to go back into the past and talk to yourself 10 years ago. And you get to hang out with yourself for a few minutes to give yourself a piece of advice. What would it be? Wow. Uh, if I were to go back and, and talk to myself 10 years ago, uh, first of all, I would have gotten into robotics a lot sooner than I did. Um, that, that would have been one thing. Um, mm -hmm. The other aspect of this is I probably would have spent more time in artificial intelligence. Um, back in the, now, understand that back in those days, a decade ago, um, I, I've, I've done some things in parallel and distributed computation theory. And in that particular model, a lot of the things that were being hyped as artificial intelligence were actually not. They were queuing theory or they were, uh, you know, some sort of optimization theory. And, you know, we were just simply relabeling them, calling them artificial intelligence so that we could get funding from the government. Um, mm. You know, that kind of thing was not terribly interesting. What we see today, however, is where we're seeing, you know, deep learning. Uh, we're seeing uh, reverse chaining neural networks. Um, those are the kinds of things that if I could go back and say, there really is something here, pay attention to it, that would probably be what I would do. All right. Pay attention to that space. 
Well, I mean, if, if I could go back and do anything, I would go back and become a special effects expert for uh, Industrial Light and Magic. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> We're not going to go there. That is for our next call. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much for coming on the show, Mike. Well, Joel, it's been my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad that uh, we were able to uh, suffer through the couple of outages here. Totally worth it. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.